Amen. Please be seated. It's a great pleasure for me to introduce you to our guest speaker this morning. This is Dr. Carl Truman. He is a professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, he is married to Katrina. He has two sons, John and Peter. And Peter, uh, his youngest, just graduated, so he is now beginning the era of empty nesting. And he's not sure what they'll do yet at this point uh, with an empty house. And uh, so he looks forward to this new era of his life. He is a prolific writer. Uh, he's written many books, and he writes online for First Things. It's a site that's worth your checking out, especially his uh, posts. He also has a weekly podcast called The Mortification of Spin, and it's worth your listening to as well. Dr. Truman is a church historian, but he's also uh, an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, so he is uh, well adapted to the scriptures and able to teach those. He does on a weekly basis preaching at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. So you can hear his sermons from his church website as well. Um, He has a unique gift, I think, um, where he is able to look at history, analyze history, look at the present time, and see how there are trends that are similar, things we've learned from the past that may be happening again now, and really has a keen ability to discern these things and help people in the church especially understand the times, understand the church's role. Uh, Personally, he's been one of the key resources in my own life and development, reading his writings, helping me think through so many of the things that we face as Christians. But most of all, Dr. Truman loves the church. He loves Christ's church, and he loves God's word, and he loves feeding uh, the people of God God's word. So that's why we're most excited to have him, and so I introduce him now to you, Dr. Carl Truman. Well, it's been a great pleasure to be uh, with you this weekend and a great pleasure to share God's word with you this morning. I wonder if you would turn in your Bibles to the first book of Samuel, chapter 18, and we'll read from verses 1 to 16. It's also on the insert in the order of worship. Hear the word of the Lord. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. 
Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Let's pray. O Lord God, you who dwell in unapproachable light, you who are infinite and holy and righteous, you whose foolishness is so much higher than even our greatest wisdom, we come into your presence this day and ask, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds, that though we are small and finite, though we are fallen and our minds are naturally darkened now, we pray, O Lord, that you would shine a light into our hearts that we might see once again the greatness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you might seal upon our hearts once again the glories of his gospel. For we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Some of you were probably here last night, and I gave a a talk and then took some answer, question and answer on the nature of human identity. And identity is a very interesting thing. How we think of ourselves is... We often don't even notice it. Uh, Emigrating to the United States made me acutely aware of how much my own identity uh, as an Englishman was shaped by the the English class system. There's nothing quite equivalent over here, and it's very difficult to sometimes grasp American culture. America seems in some ways much more dominated by race as a concept for understanding identity. It grips the imagination in a powerful way in a way that class does back home. When we used to talk back home of making education more diverse, typically in England we were talking of more working class people getting into good universities. Over here, of course, it has strong racial connotations. But what I want to say this morning, based on this passage, is that all of these identities that we concoct and create for ourselves are as nothing compared to the two fundamental identities that Scripture outlines for us. The most fundamental division in the human race is not that between classes, it's not that between races, it's not that between men and women. The most fundamental division in the human race is between those who accept Christ as King and those who reject Him as King. And this passage this morning, albeit written Uh, many years before the coming of Christ, I think speaks to that in a powerful and profound way. There's a little bit of background we need before we uh, address the narrative here. Uh, The kingdom of Israel, the Israelites, called for a king some time ago, and the king that uh, the Lord gave them was Saul. And Saul certainly started off as a, a very promising specimen, we might say. He was taller and better looking than many of the other men of his generation. When we first meet him, when Samuel first comes across him, he's on an errand for his father. He's trying to find his father's lost livestock. And there's a touching moment when Saul is concerned that he's been away so long that his father would be worrying about him. And Saul seems to lack a certain confidence when he's made king. There's there's an appropriate modesty, one might say, about his talents. Saul is a very delightful figure. When he first appears on the scene, he's a figure that's really rather attractive and looks as if he has great potential as a king. And he goes on to score a couple of 
fairly significant victories against the Israelite enemies. But then it all goes horribly wrong. He disobeys the word of the Lord on two occasions. And on the first occasion, the prophet Samuel makes it clear that the kingdom will not pass to his descendants. And on the second occasion, there is this dramatic moment when Samuel uh, speaks the judgment of God on Saul. And as he turns away from Saul, Saul grabs hold of Samuel's robe. And Samuel turns away and pulls the robe, and the robe tears. And Samuel turns and points at him and says, Yes, today the Lord has torn the kingdom from your hands and given it to another man, to a better man. And just before this chapter that we read, of course, comes the incident of David and Goliath. And it's hard not to imagine that as Saul looked at the battlefield that day and saw this young man go out and slay the champion of the Philistines, that he did not realize that the prophecy of Samuel was being fulfilled before his eyes, that here was the better man, that the kingdom was going to be torn from his hands and given to David. So that's the immediate background to this passage, and it's important to understand that, uh, to understand some of the remarkable things that occur in the text we've just read. And I want to really zero in on three things this morning. I want to look at the friendship of Jonathan and David. I want to look at the growing animosity of Saul towards David. And I want to reflect upon the growing love of the people of Israel for David. So first of all, the friendship, the growing friendship between Jonathan and David. We're told three things in this passage about the friendship of Jonathan for David. First of all, in verse 1, if you look, we're told that Jonathan's soul was knit to that of David. The language of knit is really quite strong. If you go away this afternoon, if you want to look up uh, knit in the Bible and see how it's used, you know, you could do worse than start with, say, Job chapter 10, verse 11, where Job is reflecting upon his formation within his mother's womb. And he talks about the Lord knitting him together in his mother's womb, the binding together of Job's body and soul in the womb. He uses the language of knit in order to describe that powerful intimate, integrative process within the womb. And here, we here learn that Jonathan's soul is knit to that of David. This is powerful, intimate language. There's an intimate bond and friendship developing between these two. We might say perhaps Jonathan and David became like blood brothers. They were like brothers. The connection between them was so powerful. And it's touching in many ways, but it's also very surprising. Think of who Jonathan is. It beggars belief to think that Jonathan had not heard of the judgment that had come against his father at the hands of Samuel. Jonathan must know that the kingdom is not going to pass to him. He must know that the kingdom is going to be given to another man, to a better man. And he must have a reasonable suspicion that that better man is David. Jonathan has every reason to be a rival of David at this point. He has every reason to be fearful and suspicious of this man who's going to supplant him, who's going to take the role that, humanly speaking, he should take. And yet we learn that his soul was knit to that of David. This powerful friendship bond develops between them. 
We learn another thing about this as well. We're told in verse 1, at the end of verse 1, that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. He loved David as his own soul. Part of the problem, of course, with the language of love these days is it's, it's really become very cheapened in, in modern culture. Love has become either a code word for, for sex or simply a statement about a sort of mushy emotional feeling. You know, if my wife were to walk into the church now, I hope that I would have something of a mushy emotional feeling. I hope my heart would beat a little faster. I hope there's something sentimental and emotional there. But love is much more than that, isn't it? You've got somebody who you know, beats their wife, treats them like a piece of garbage all the time, and then says, yeah, but I still love her, or I still love you. That's rubbish. That's rubbish. Love is constituted by actions. To beat your wife and to say you love her, you're lying. That's a contradiction. Love is constituted by a relationship that is manifested in particular sacrificial actions. The love here that we hear of Jonathan for David does not exclude that powerful emotional bond. We talked about that in the very first point I made. But it speaks here of Jonathan's active commitment to the cause of David. We might even say there's a strong political dimension to this. Jonathan must know who David is and where his significance lies, and yet he commits himself at this point to David's cause. When it says that Jonathan loved David as his own soul, Jonathan was willing to sacrifice himself for David's cause. That's what we're being told Jonathan is committing himself to the Lord's anointed despite all the human reasons he might have to the contrary. Unfortunately, I have to mention this, in this day and age, this would not have come up even as an issue 20, 30 years ago. There is nothing homoerotic about this connection between David and Jonathan. What we're seeing before us is a powerful, deep, emotional, political, male-to-male friendship. These two men are committed to each other. They are not in love with each other in the contemporary sense of the word. And that brings me to the third thing we learn about Jonathan and David. We're told, verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David. What is a covenant? It's a binding agreement between two or more parties, usually accompanied by a sign. Later on, we're going to take, partake of the Lord's Supper. It's a covenant meal. There are promises of God attached to it, and there are signs. There are signs attached to those promises. And in this ceremony, the sign is, is interesting. It's not what we say, what verse 4 says. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Think about that. Yeah, it's kind of touching. Jonathan gives him his suit of clothes, but it's more than that. Jonathan gives him his robe. What was the robe that Jonathan wore? It would have been the robe of the heir of the kingdom. You know, if you look at the British royal family on certain occasions where Prince Charles is there, he'll wear certain clothing. It's not just, it's not just clothing. It signifies who he is within the hierarchy. He's the heir apparent to the throne. When Jonathan gives David his robe, he's giving him his royal robe. What we're witnessing here is Jonathan's abdication of his rights to the throne, even as he commits himself to the cause 
of David. First applications then that arise from this passage, fairly straightforward, I think. First of all, just a comment on friendship. Deep, personal friendship is a human need, a perennial human need. Tragically, we live in an era where friendship has been attenuated, it's been reduced to somebody who links to you on Facebook, or it's been reduced to sexual encounters. Love and friendship are more than that. Deep, personal commitments to each other in a sacrificial way. And in a world where friendship is at a discount, I think the church should be well-placed to model what true love and friendship are. Active, committed, and sacrificial. It's one of Christ's commands, isn't it? John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And there's a purpose behind this because Christ goes on and says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the great opportunities, I think, for witnessing in this contemporary age is the church can be a place of community and friendship in an era where people are desperate for community and friendship. And it's what we're meant to do. But the second thing, the second application, perhaps cuts closer to home even than the first. The basic human desire is what? The basic human desire is to be the master of our own destiny. To be able to determine who we are and to rule our own lives. And the challenge this passage places before us, the challenge that the example of Jonathan places before us this morning is, will we surrender those rights to the one that the Lord has anointed? The Bible teaches that Christ is king. How do we respond to that? Jonathan, I think, is the great paradigm of how we should respond to that. We should abdicate our desire for autonomy. What should we do when confronted by Christ? We should acknowledge that we are not heirs apparent. We are not masters of our own destiny. We are subjects of another. And we are to acknowledge that. We are to acknowledge that. But what is the other option? Well, the other option is actually also presented to us in this passage, my second point, and that is the increasing alienation that exists between Saul and David. There's some good stuff uh, in this passage, some some positive reflection on the relationship between Saul and David. Uh, David is brought uh, into the royal household at this point. He's given a, a position of some status, we might say, as a permanent resident of the royal household, verse 2. And then in verse 5, we hear that because of his evident success, he's placed over the men of war. He receives promotion within the army because of his evident military success. But that military success brings about the turning point Verse 7, mentioned this in the first sermon, but I often get asked, uh, you know, what are, what's the, what are the big differences between living in America and living in the United States? And some of the biggest differences are also the most trivial. Cheerleaders. We don't have any kind of equivalent in the UK, or at least we didn't have when I left. The idea of cheerleaders at a cricket match is really kind of rather jarring uh, as a thought. And I remember the first time I went to see my son uh, play, my oldest son playing soccer at his school, and they had all these girls lined up along the touchline, dancing and singing. 
you know, we just have no equivalent in the UK. You know, the sports game to watch the match. Uh, the first cheerleaders, here we have them, maybe the first cheerleaders in history. The women come out and sing this song, verse 7. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And I would guess that these women are far more existentially committed to what's happened than even cheerleaders are at uh, Super Bowl matches. These women are celebrating probably the homecoming of a father or a brother or son. They're celebrating the safety that has been brought to their people by the victories of David and Saul. And they sing this song, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands, which isn't actually as provocative as it first appears. It isn't really as offensive as Saul thinks it is. Glad we read this morning from Psalm 90. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand. It's a, it's a sort of poetic convention. Poetic convention that when you cite a number, you intensify it in a couplet to make a point. So they're not actually saying here, David is ten times as good as Saul. I think what they're trying to do is simply link David and Saul together in the great victories that have been brought about for the people of Israel. But Saul's paranoid. Saul is descending into paranoia at this point, and we see his reaction. First of all, we see the anger and the envy of Saul in verses 8 and 9. Think of him being envious of David's success. A couple of things we could say about that one. You kind of feel sorry for Saul on one level because he needs David to succeed for the kingdom to be safe. On the other hand, as he promotes David, David becomes more and more of a danger to him. Saul is sort of lethally connected to the promotion of David. He needs David, but he knows that the stronger David gets, the more dangerous it's going to be for his own crown. But nonetheless, being envious of David's success is pretty stupid. If David was not successful, he would come back and bite Saul. Saul is the commander-in-chief, and if there's no military success, then it's him who will ultimately carry the can for that. So it's stupid, really, to be upset at David's success. Does he want David to lose? Does he want the kingdom jeopardized? That would be ridiculous. Secondly, it's also profane, because David success is the success of God's anointed. And to resent the success of David is really to resent the success of God himself. But it gets worse for Saul, doesn't it? Verses 10 and 11, we hear about the troubling spirit that descends, that rushes upon Saul. Seems to be something of a regular occurrence in Saul's life at this point. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, this sort of, the spirit comes, torments him, and that's why he first brings David into the royal household. We're told uh, in a recent chapter that the, the Spirit of God has gone from Saul to David. That which made Saul powerful, when the Spirit rushed upon Saul, that was what made him powerful in the early chapters of his reign. Now that Spirit is gone, and it rushes upon, he rushes upon David instead. And we, he, we read here that as the Spirit rushes upon him, he raves. Except actually he doesn't really rave at all. It's the same word as is used in 1 Samuel 10 when the Spirit first comes upon Saul. We're told that Saul prophesies. There he's being numbered among the Lord's prophets. Now in context, the Spirit signals the exact opposite. Saul is no longer part of the Lord's team. 
He's a raving opponent of the Lord at this point. And Saul, as he descends into this paranoid frenzy, becomes fearful of David. Verses 12 and 13 and verses 15. David is an offense to Saul, a threat to him. As he sees David's rising power and prominence, Saul reacts accordingly with fear and with loathing. And even here makes two abortive assassination attempts against him. Well, what's the application of Saul's reaction? I would say it's this. Saul represents the other attitude that one can have to the Lord's anointed. Have you ever noticed the passion with which people dislike Christianity? Richard Dawkins fascinates me as a psychological phenomenon because of the passion with which he hates Christianity. I don't think unicorns exist, and therefore I waste precisely zero amount of my time passionately railing against unicorns and people who do silly things because they think unicorns exist. It's just not worth my time wasting my life on something that doesn't exist. But those who reject Christ typically reject him with a passion that transcends rational analysis. Why is that? Because Christ is a threat to us in the same way that David is a threat to Saul. David's existence is a reminder to Saul that he's not king, that he's not master of his own destiny. And Christ, Christ is a reminder to us that we are not who we care to think we are. We are not masters of our own destiny. We are creatures of God and accountable to him. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, 23. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. David is a stumbling block to Saul because David's very existence is a reminder to Saul that it isn't all about him. And he's not really in charge. The passion, I would suggest, with which Christ is opposed in this world is a moral passion because Christ's very existence presents us with a fundamentally moral question. Who rules? Who rules over your life? Every single one of us needs to address that question. And that brings me to my final point. More briefly, the third reaction to David in this passage, the love of the people for David. It's a very touching comment, isn't it? Saul being compared in these last verses as his fear of David grows, as he stands in fearful awe of David. Verse 16 says, But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. The people's reaction to David is so different to Saul's. His promotion, we're told in verse 5, is good in their sight because they know he's the right man for the job. The guy who slew Goliath is surely the right man to have a prominent position in the military. The song of joy of the women who greet Saul, presumably that's emblematic of the attitude of Israel as a whole. And then there's that final verse I've just quoted. All Israel and Judah loved him. Why do they love David? 
They love David because they see what he's done. They love David because they know that only he can do it. And they love David because they know he has done it on their behalf. Saul resents David because David makes Saul small. David's victories reduce Saul in his own eyes to a small nobody. And Saul cannot stand it. The people of Israel, they're protected by the same victories. But they know that David is not scoring these victories to make them small. They know that David is scoring these victories to make them safe. And they rejoice in that fact. Those women are rejoicing because they know their families are safe as a result of what David has done. And that brings me then to my final application. And the application is really a question. Is our response, is your response to the person and work of Christ one of joy or one of resentment? Does Christ make you feel small? Or does he make you in your smallness feel safe? That's the question. And that's the fundamental dividing line that lies down the middle of the human race. It's what Paul is pointing to in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter if you're tall or small. It doesn't matter if you're British or German or Canadian or American. All of those things. They're inventions. The ultimate, the ultimate identity of every single person here, every single person on the face of the planet is determined by this. How do you react to the cross of Christ? What do you think of the cross of Christ? Is it the power of God to salvation? Or is it a nonsense and an offense to you? That's the real question of identity politics. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this day, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work faith and repentance within our hearts that when we look to the cross, we would not be fearful or resentful. We would not hate Christ or regard him as a nonsense. We pray, O God, that as we look to the cross, we would see there the power of God to salvation that makes us small, yes, but above all makes us safe. For we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Let us respond by turning to 447. Let's stand and sing the first two verses of Christ for the World We Sing.